Dear friends, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 11. We'll be walking through verses 29 through 32 this morning. Let's go ahead and read that passage. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus has been confronting this generation, as he says. He's been confronting the leadership within the people of Israel, and he's been confronting the people in their unbelief during this time. He has been charged with doing miracles. Remember this, they weren't denying that he could do miracles, but rather they were attributing those miracles to Satan. They said that he does what he does with the help of Beelzebub, basically saying that uh, this is the, the Lord of the flies by which you're doing this, or, or the Lord of dung by which you are doing these miracles. And we saw Jesus give a parable recently, and it's a parable that many people don't recognize as a parable, but I believe it absolutely is a parable. And he talks of the man who was possessed by a demon, and then the demon left, and he cleaned up his life. He became more moral, right? He probably took on some better habits, right? Maybe he read a, a self-help book, and he began to really seek to get his life in order. And it says that that demon went and found seven others, and then went back to him, and, his, and he was even worse than he was in the beginning. Mere moralism was not helpful to this man. And that parable, we said, is talking about this generation of people within the first century, those to whom Christ came, those who were there amongst all the ceremonies of the Old Testament, the greatness and the beauty of all that is there, the greatness of the temple that was there within the great city of Jerusalem, and all the sights and the smells and the sounds and everything surrounding all the ceremonies that happened there within that temple was all pointing to Jesus, who He was and what it is that He is going to do. And you have this people that has been blessed more than any other people that has ever existed in regard to spiritual blessing that is there. And it is the Messiah to whom all of these ceremonies pointed that has come forth. And these men were so hardened in their false religion and their moralism that they found the Messiah who had been given to save men from their sins, to save men from the wrath of God. They found themselves to be more righteous than Him because he wasn't following their man-made rules, because he wasn't washing his hands the way in which they had determined they should wash their hands. Perhaps they had some good ideas on how to wash their hands. Perhaps there were some good theological reasons, and there was some wisdom behind what they did. But it was not for them to project that onto Christ, to demand that of the disciples. 
And although this is a people that, as we talked about in that parable, had cleaned themselves up, idolatry, at least outward idolatry, the, the high places, the, the worshiping of Baal and Ashroth, you don't see any of that occurring here, as you saw that throughout the Old Testament. Just regularly, remember the, the history of the kings, and it would speak of this king, well, this is a good king, but he didn't remove the high places. And you had this king, and he was a terrible one. And he allowed Ashroth and Baal and, and the, the sacrifices of infants and all kinds of, of terrible behaviors that was occurring during that time period. None of that's happening right now. You don't have this outward pagan idolatry being practiced here in the first century. They have cleaned themselves up. But it's not sufficient. See, that's the reality of self-righteousness. That, that's the reality of man and his pride for religion. He can really clean himself up, and he can feel like that he is doing well, and he is very decent, and he is very appropriate, and he is doing this by comparison to other people. But yet the man who's walking in his sin at least is remembering his own sinfulness. See, he is closer to the cross than the one that thinks he is not sinful. And that was the reality with this generation that is there. They were worse off than they were in the beginning. They were worse off in their unbelief. Christ came to them, and He was denied. And we talked about this ultimately culminates in 70 A.D. with the judgment of God as it fell upon Jerusalem. As Titus, the Roman general, came in, and you can read of this in a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he, that he overwhelmed the city. Five months he was sieging Jerusalem, and the society fell apart. You see the words of Jesus in prophesying this in the, in the, in the book of Matthew, and it begins to flow very similarly to what he says. Murder, famine, cannibalism begins to overtake the city. It is completely destroyed. There is but one wall that is standing at this point, um, and it is the wall that is, that is used by the Jews where they will go and they will, they will pray. That is all that is left from that great city in the first century. There weren't Christians in the city during this time. The Christians had listened to the words of Christ. They interpreted the words of Christ to be pointing to this judgment that would come, and they left the city. Some of them left because of persecution from the Jews and the others just left, and they did not stand up to fight the Romans like the Jews did. So overwhelmingly, the Christians were saved from this attack in Jerusalem. This is God's judgment. It fell upon the people at this time because of their rejection of Jesus. We'll likely unpack this a little more as we continue to walk through this gospel, but there's two, two main points that I want us to see, and I think they're very applicable to people in this day and time as well. And the first is that carnal men blame God for their unbelief in God. Carnal men blame God for their unbelief in God. And I think that's quite incredible. But you have a people that will say they, they don't believe in Jesus because He's not doing this, that, or the other thing. There are people now that will say, I don't believe in God because if there was a God, then He would and then they fill in the blank of what it is that God needs to do. Meanwhile, they are breathing the air of God. They're eating the food that God has given to them. They're using the eyes and the brain that God has given to them. 
And secondly, we see this, that Jesus offers no further signs to carnal men. Jesus has given sufficient evidence to all people everywhere. We see this in the confession that God has shared His truth with us in all that has been made. There is sufficient evidence all around us to condemn each and every person. You don't need the Bible to tell you that God exists, although the Bible tells you that God exists. You don't need the Bible to tell you that stealing is sinful. You know that already, even without the Bible. The Bible tells you that stealing is sinful, but you don't need the Bible to tell you that. There is sufficient evidence all around you regarding the fact that God exists and that He requires you to live a holy life. And these men desire something more from Jesus. And carnal men in this culture demand something more from God. And God gives only what He has already given because that is sufficient. Let's look at this first point that carnal men blame God for their unbelief in God. Carnal men blame God for their unbelief in God. We see this in verse 29 of Luke 11. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Now, you must remember that this is a people that were demanding that Jesus do more than he already had. They were blaming God for their unbelief. A man just says, well, you know, maybe if I just had more evidence, then I would believe in God. John MacArthur makes this comment on this passage. He says, by demanding a sign, they were claiming that Jesus was to blame for their rejection of him because he supposedly had not given them enough evidence. And we see them doing that in the passages just prior to this Now, there are some fantastic stories of rabbis that came uh, prior to Christ in His incarnation. There are stories of rabbis in the past that caused rivers to flow backwards. It said that another one caused a tree to move from one place to another. Another was said to have moved the stars around, and He caused new constellations to come into existence. Um, And none of these were the Messiah. Um, and so this is kind of the, this idea here. Um, there's even another. There's even another one. There's a book about this. That there was a rabbi that came, and he was he was able to fly fly around. And there's a children's book called the called the Rabbi that flew around. Um, these are legendary stories. Uh, none of them are in the Old Testament, which should be a sign to their authenticity. Um, you know, I mean, if none of these made it into the Old Testament Scriptures, if, if, if these weren't actually the Messiah, if these weren't men sent from God as prophets, and, um, then, then it's probably evidence that these things didn't actually happen. So one man will argue that, well, there's just not enough evidence around me. Another one will say, well, how can there be a God when this has happened or, or that has happened? And there were people at this time that struggled with that. You know, how can this be the Messiah when he's not removing the reign of Rome over us? Look at how evil Rome is. Look at how terrible Rome is. And, and yet, you're not doing anything to stand up against this. You're saying, give to Caesar what is, what is Caesar's. And even nowadays, people will say, they will look at the greatness of evil in the world. They look at the greatness of sin. They will look at tragedy, and they can say, well, if there's a God, how can this be, how can this be in existence? How can such tragedy happen? But you remove God from the equation and you remove any standard of 
right and wrong. You remove any standard of, of morality. You, you are not a mere animal. Animals don't have morality. They may have ways in which they live, but they don't, they're not moral as you are moral. They don't recognize good and evil. They don't recognize um, sin like you recognize that there is sin. And so the, the mere fact that you recognize these things is evidence of God. We call this the moral argument for the existence of God. But these people in this time, some of these scribes that were saying that He can't be the Messiah because He's not bringing forward enough signs. He's not like these, these great uh, rabbis we had before that were doing all of these magical tricks. You must understand that that's not the purpose of what Jesus was doing. So many people misunderstand the miracles that Jesus does, that He was just trying to do these things so that people would, would then just believe in Him because He was really, really, really powerful. Some of this shows up in in other writings, the infancy gospel of Thomas, written, it's a Gnostic writing written in the second century, and it talks about Jesus at one point. Some think that he was a child in this story, and, but it doesn't really say. And so that he, he made, some, uh, made some birds out of clay and they flew, flew away. Interestingly, that story even made it into the Quran. Um, it's not a gospel, it's not historical, it's not something that we have any evidence that actually happened, and it's not like the other writings of Scripture that are written near the time in which these things are said to have occurred. But again, that's a very different miracle from the other ones that he is doing. His miracles aren't showmanship. He's not, trying, he's not running for president. He's not trying to get elected to run for office. He never pursued that in any way. Linsky says this, the great Lutheran commentary, Linsky, says this. He says, the scribes intended to say that all the signs which Jesus had done were insufficient. They must, according to what they as authorities knew about the Old Testament, demand something more convincing from Jesus, some sign from heaven, like moving the heavens, making uh, clouds gyrate, the sun, the moon, the stars, perform antics, visions painted with unearthly colors in the sky, angel hosts parading down the Milky Way, all these scribes made this demand because they were convinced that Jesus could not meet them and would thus be discredited when these scribes would shout in their derision, we told you so. But all of these types of miracles stand in contrast to what Jesus did. He wasn't putting on a show. He wasn't trying to put on a performance. He, these weren't magical tricks that would just make people want to believe in Him. All right? And, and think of this. Think of this. If, if this was the reality of, of, of what He was doing, all right, then you would have some, something in the Old Testament that was pointing to this. But when Jesus is even questioned by John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist, this time of difficulty, he's in prison, he's suffering under Herod because of his righteousness, because he confronted Herod for taking Herodias as a wife when it was his brother's wife. And he's in prison during this time, and John begins to question, is he the Messiah? Is he truly the one? I mean, surely if the Messiah is here, I'm not going to be sitting in prison. And what does he say? Luke 7, beginning in verse 22, Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended 
by me. Each of these miracles that he is doing was prophesied in the Old Testament of what the Messiah would do when he came, pointing to him as the Messiah, but they're also pointing to what Jesus is doing spiritually and will ultimately do physically for his people. You have both aspects there. He is, it's pointing to what he will do spiritually. Those that are blind and are given sight, it is pointing to what God does in their life by giving them spiritual sight. Those who are unable to walk and then are given the ability to walk. This is the idea that one is spiritually dead. They're unable to move around spiritually, but the Lord has given them the ability to move around. And that's what He is doing. Ultimately, ultimately, Christ will give us new bodies. We will not suffer any longer. There will be no maladies, no difficulties in any way. But at this time, it's pointing to what He will do for us spiritually, what He does for His people spiritually. And they've had much, much evidence on this. We could just scan through a little bit of this gospel to see the overwhelming miracles that they have already seen. Um, Luke 4, uh, he healed Peter's mother by rebuking the fever, um, and also others that came to him that had diseases. As he's moving around, they're just bringing him. People are just flocking to him and being healed. Luke 5, we have the great catch of fish. You remember that? They worked all night. He told Peter, let's go back out and throw the nets out. Many people don't realize that the miracle wasn't just that they caught the fish, but that they caught the fish during the day. They were using these very large drag nets that would drag across the water and would catch the fish. Those nets didn't work during the day. You had to fish differently during that time. The fish would see these giant nets trolling through the water, and they would swim away. It was a miracle not only that they caught so many fish, but also that they caught the fish during the day. And Peter, being the fisherman, recognized that. Peter, being the fisherman, saw Christ's divinity at that time, and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Look at the difference that is there. The man that says, if only I had one more sign, if only there was just another miracle, if only God just evidenced himself in some other way, will come up with a reason not to accept whatever is before him, because it's not an issue of evidence. Peter has this miracle, a miracle that's not as significant as someone raising from the dead or their sight coming back or someone's arm growing back or someone who is lame being able to walk. But as a fisherman, he saw this. He saw the power of God. He saw Christ and His sovereignty. And he, like Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6, said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Like Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. You see the glory of God rightly, and you will see your own fallenness. You will see your own sinfulness. You must not wallow in those times of sin. When you see this, you must see your insufficiency and turn to the only means God has given, and that is Christ Jesus. We see in Luke 7, the man who is healed with the withered hand, healed on the Sabbath. Remember that? The Pharisees judged him. Well, why would you do it on this day? Why don't you just wait till tomorrow? You could have done it the day before. We had a tradition here. They had no tradition about healing on the Sabbath. None of them were doing such, such miracles. It doesn't matter how much evidence or material blessing carnal men get. It will not result in belief. Just merely giving people education doesn't solve their greatest problem. Merely giving people money doesn't solve 
their greatest problem. We see this, and we'll get to it in Luke 16, but there's a parable there of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is in hell during this time, or is in Hades, if you want to word it that way, and he is concerned for his five brothers. And he says this, beginning in verse 27 of Luke 16, it says, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that is what you have before them at this time, is this judgment that is before them, this, this sign of Jonah that is given to this unbelieving generation, this generation that has been blessed so immensely with the history that is there amongst them, the ways in which God has worked by sending prophets over and over and over. Almost all of the prophets, the vast, vast majority of all prophets that were ever sent were sent to the Jews, were sent to this small group of people through which the Lord was going to bring His Messiah, as He had said He would do to, to Abraham. And it is only Jonah that we see who was sent to, the, uh, who, who was sent to, to Gentiles. But this people that has been blessed in so many ways has been blessed with even having the Messiah standing before them, doing that which God said He would do, is blaming God for their unbelief, is, is dismissing dismissing even the Messiah that is before them. And Jesus says this, he, he will offer no further signs. We see that secondly, Jesus offers no further signs to these carnal men. We see that beginning in verse 29 of Luke 11. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is laying out his case before them. There's many miracles that have already been performed. There's sufficient evidence that is there. There's Moses and the prophets that are pointing to Christ as the Messiah. And he says, no more. No more. To that man that says, well, if only God would just do this. God says, no more. No more signs will be given. No more miracles will be given to such a man. As though God is, is a genie in the bottle where you can just rub on the lamp and then he will come out and do whatever it is that you want. This is a pagan idea. God cannot be mocked. He will not be mocked. You cannot coax God to do this or that. These are, these are pagan understandings of God. And he tells them there will be what, but one more sign. But one more sign, and that sign is the sign of Jonah. What is meant by this? What is the sign 
of Jonah. There's a few ways that we're going to understand this. I'm going to emphasize a primary way that we need to understand this, but then there's also uh, other ways that are supported as well, and I think specifically through the wording that we have here within uh, this gospel, they are supported. But primarily, the sign of Jonah has to do with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, and then he came out, so Christ will die, he will be buried, and he will rise again. But secondarily, we also have uh, an emphasis here on on, on the ministry and the preaching of, of Christ and the gospel that's being brought to this Mosaic Covenant community at this time. And you have the opposite of that happening with Jonah. And Jonah going to the Ninevites, Jonah going to these uncircumcised pagans, these people that were walking in idolatry, and they had not the blessings that the Jewish people had, but yet they repented at his preaching they responded to Jonah and his preaching. And furthermore, you have this, this emphasis that he places upon the Queen of Sheba. So the, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, these Gentiles are going to judge you. That's what he's saying. These Gentiles are going to judge you in your unrighteousness because they responded to lesser light than you have right now. And the Queen of Sheba, it comes from uh, an area which is, which is basically Yemen. And so she traveled all the way across the Arabian Peninsula, not an easy uh, route to, to travel, to go and to meet Solomon, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and brought many gifts to Solomon at that time. And Christ has come to them. They didn't even have to travel to him. He came to them. He was born amongst them as one of them, one who was prophesied that would come forward from them. And they are dismissing him. They are denying them. And so it is showing the grace that was shown to these Gentiles because of their repentance and faith and the judgment that is over them. Think of Jonah. Remember, we, we preach through the book of Jonah, and you can basically break Jonah into four parts. You have Jonah in the first chapter, he's running from God. Uh, Jonah in the second chapter receives grace from God. All right, he doesn't give him what he absolutely deserves for his behavior. Jonah repents there in the belly of the fish, and he's praying to God. And then Jonah goes forward and walks in obedience to God and goes to the Ninevites and, and preaches to them, preaches repentance towards God, and they respond overwhelmingly, respond overwhelmingly to this prophet that was spit out upon the shore and traveled this great distance to go and to speak to them. And then you have the fourth chapter, which is the most interesting one, and that's the one where Jonah is basically sulking over the grace of God. He is, he is angry that God has shown grace to the Ninevites, that He has shown grace to this people. And sometimes we look at the story and we say, oh, well, you know, Jonah was a racist, or, or, or Jonah um, was not accepting of people that are, that are a little bit different, uh, dressed a little bit different than him, and that doesn't quite give the picture. These were, these were a ruthless and terrible people. This was a people that had terrorized the Jews. There are, there are many of Jonah's family members that, are, that have suffered under the hands of this people. There are many um, that aren't alive anymore because of the terroristic activity that was happening from the people of Nineveh going into this time. And we talked through some of these terrible ways that they would behave, that uh, they did terrible things in warfare. They would remove people's skin and use that as wallpaper, just really bizarre and twisted um, activities from this people. 
But even that can be forgiven by Christ. Even that unbelievably terrible behavior can be forgiven by Christ. And Jonah was struggling in this area. The Lord was still working on Jonah during this time as he is, he is sad over a plant that dies at the end of that story, but yet he's not sad that this people is saved, that these animals are saved, that the, that the, the city was not, not destroyed. And similarly, I want to say that we, we see that as well here. We see these, these leaders that were there that did not like the grace that Christ was showing to other people. That you see these, that he is, they're saying he's a friend of sinners. He's hanging out with prostitutes. He's hanging out with tax collectors. These are people that repented. Jesus wasn't hanging out in the bar and getting drunk. He wasn't acting in, in sinful ways. These are people that saw their sin. People that, that uh, one woman, she, she's washing his feet with her, her tears because she's seeing the grace of God and what he has, he has shown to her. That's the reality. You see the greatness of your sin. You see the, the greatness of the grace of God. And these leaders, like Jonah, were despising that, except Jonah was actually in a right standing with God, and these leaders are, are not. But the primary meaning and the main meaning that we need to understand of the sign of Jonah has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. And, and again, I want to support Matthew, use Matthew to support this. We used Matthew to support our interpretation of the parable of the man with the unclean spirits, and I think we should do that as well. This is a good principle in hermeneutics to look at the other parts of Scripture and to use the light that is given there. We don't have to stay only in whatever context that we're in at this time. The Lord has given us the totality of the Scriptures. And in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says this. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here that primarily the sign of Jonah is going to be the fact that Jesus is going to die and he's going to be resurrected from the dead. One commentator, Lang, says this, as Jonah from the belly of the fish had come forth to appear to the Ninevites, so should the risen Jesus be for his contemporaries a sign, but not from heaven, but from the depth of the earth shall be the sign, but yet it should serve for their condemnation. It's a key that I want you to see here. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a hope to believers. It is, it is an evidence of the, the truth of what Christ said and, and what He has preached, but it is also a condemnation for those who are unbelieving. So it serves that dual purpose. The gospel serves as it is proclaimed, as it is declared to the people of God, a reminder of their sin and their hopelessness and a reminder of Christ and His sufficiency. So as the gospel is preached and the Christian hears it once again, they are reminded of Christ and what He has done, and they are clinging to the cross even more each and every time that they hear it. But it serves also for the condemnation of the one who does not believe, for Christ is going to be resurrected, and they will deny Him, denying Him as a people who have been blessed in so many great ways, but yet still deny God, still deny the Messiah that God had given to them. But yet these Gentiles had less light and responded to God at that time. The resurrection is a crucial aspect in Christian theology. You don't have Christianity apart from the resurrection of the dead. 
You don't have Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus. There are many that will try to paint themselves as Christians that deny uh, such a resurrection. Uh, John Dominique Crosston is one who, who served on the Jesus Seminar, um, and it's pretty much a bunch of scholars that claim to be Christians that, that are not Christians, that find ways to deny almost um, every carnal doctrine of Christianity. And John Dominique Crossan is one who denies the resurrection. He says that Jesus was basically thrown in a trash dump and consumed by dogs, something that he just made up, something he just created. There's no evidence that that, that happened. But the resurrection is such a crucial part of Christianity that apart from it, you don't have Christianity. Paul says this, that without the resurrection, that we should be pitied above all other people. Paul says this, that apart from the resurrection, we are still in our sins. We have no hope apart from the resurrection. One commentator named Stein says this, he says, as Jonah was a sign, so also will be the Son of Man, even as Jonah's experience was a sign, so the resurrection of the Son of Man would be a sign in the core of the early church's preaching would be Jesus' death and resurrection. So the resurrection is, is prominent in Christian theology. It was prominent amongst the preaching in the early church. The apostles had to be a witness to the ministry of Jesus and also to His resurrection. Uh, Acts 1, beginning in verse 21. So one of them who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he, he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. This was a crucial part of being an apostle, that you were a witness to the ministry of Jesus and also to the resurrection of Jesus. So know this, the next time you have someone that tells you that they are a modern-day apostle, they're wrong. They just aren't. It's not even true. Now, there's, there's times in church history where people will say, well, this person has the gift of apostleship, and they're speaking of someone who has maybe the gift of being a missionary or going and being an evangelist in a, a far-off place. And um, I, I'm, not, I, I'm okay with someone using that, but it's a bit confusing and, and unnecessary that I don't think we should even use it anymore because we have people that are actually claiming to be apostles, claiming that they are in the same position as the apostles that served in the first century. It's not possible. Okay, you, you haven't lived 2,000 years. You weren't alive then. You, di you weren't there with Christ in His ministry, and you, you didn't see Christ in His resurrection but there is a central point in the preaching in the early church. We see that in Acts 2, beginning in verse 30. It says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. So this is central to the preaching of the early church, not only that Christ resurrected, but it was prophesied by writers of Scripture previously that Christ would die and be resurrected. Acts 3, beginning in verse 13. It's, it's, this is Peter preaching, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you denied the Holy Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know, 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of, of you all. Again, Acts chapter 4, we're going to see this. The apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 5, we see it again. God exalted him at the right hand as the leader and Savior, again emphasizing the fact that he died and he rose again. It's impossible, impossible to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. It's impossible to be a Christian and believe that you will not be resurrected. This is a hope that the Christian has. Christ died and was resurrected, and He is what we will be. Not that she will be divine, but that she will be raised from the dead, just as He was raised up bodily. Bodily He died, and bodily He raised up, so you too will die, and you will be raised up in the last day. That is our hope. That is a hope for the Christian but the same resurrection serves as a judgment for the unbeliever. And we see this specifically, not just in the preaching of Jesus here, which I believe he's talking about in the sign of Jonah, that Christ being raised from the dead is going to be a judgment upon this generation because they are not believing in the one that was sent to them. But it's also demonstrated in the preaching of other apostles. We see that by Paul in Acts 17, beginning in verse 30. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has assured us all, assured to all by raising him from the dead. Look at what Paul does there in verse 31 of Acts 17 that he says there is an assurance that there will be a final judgment. There is an assurance that all men will be judged. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. All people will die and stand and be judged by the Lord. And this is evidenced by the resurrection. Have you thought of that reality? Have you thought of the fact that Jesus being raised from the dead points to the fact that there is going to be a judgment. This is a common theme that we see amongst the apostles. The resurrection points to the grace of God, right? That is your hope that you will be resurrected, that you will live, and that you will reside with God in glory for all eternity. But it's also evidence of the judgment of God. God is just in saving sinners who trust in Christ Jesus. But the fact that He saves sinners, the fact that Christ needed to come and to die, and to take upon himself the wrath of God is evidence that there is a wrath of God. It is evidence that there is a law of God. It is evidence that God has a righteous and a holy standard. And all will be held account to it. And you will, dear friends, you will stand in your own righteousness, in your own goodness, in your own sufficiency, before the Lord in the judgment seat, or you will stand in the righteousness of Christ, Him being your advocate. It is crucial. It is crucial for your own good that you have Christ as your advocate. You will not stand before the Lord and say, I just didn't have enough signs. I, I, just, didn't have, I just didn't have enough evidence. <laughs> Apart from the wrath of God, there would be no need for the resurrection of the dead. Christ died. 
Christ died under the wrath of God. The fullness of the wrath of God fell upon him. That which the people deserved, Christ took upon himself that they could have that they could be saved, that they could have life. Do you have such life? Are you, are you alive in Christ Jesus? Linsky says this, he says, this is the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus. It means for this wicked generation that judgment and condemnation at the hands of the glorified Jesus, that Christ will judge them. They will be judged by these Gentiles that they despised, and they will be judged by the one whom they put to death. And mark this. Catch this point. That there is greater judgment for this people. There is greater judgment for these leaders, for these scribes, for these Pharisees, for the people of Israel that lived there in the first century, who, who walked about in these festivals, who, who walked in the Sabbaths and these, these different activities that they had that pointed to Christ, there is greater judgment where there is greater light that is given. There is greater judgment on those to whom greater light is given. And John Calvin emphasizes this. He says this, It is not solely, therefore, because they ask for a sign that Christ makes this attack upon the scribes, but because they are ungrateful to God. They wickedly despise so many of the wonderful works and try to find a subterfuge for not obeying the word. That is, that is carnal man. He will look about and try to find some way to justify his sinful behavior, going so far as to even blame God, to even blame God and the blessings that God had given to them. That is, that is what they have. They have the greatness of this blessing before them, the fullness of what is given to them here in the revelation of God displayed among them light given to this people that was not given to any other people in the entire world. God was showing kindness to them. See, but the blessings of the Lord, dear friends, the goodness of the blessings of the Lord can be used to glorify God, to worship God, in, in rightfully enjoying them, rightfully thanking Him and worshiping Him for what He has given to us. They can also be used to sin against him even more. That's what natural man does. Natural man takes the blessings that God gives to him and uses them to further sin against God even more. And you have these people doing this. You have these people taking the blessings that God gives and using them to sin against God even more. Oh, dear friend, consider yourself. Consider where you are. Consider the light that you have been given, the, the blessings that you have even in this, this day and age, the, the freedom to worship as you do, the freedom to have the, the Word of God within your language, the freedom to have access to, to so many uh, various means of, of hearing God's Word, of, of understanding God's Word. Is this something that you use for the glory of God? Is this something that you use to glorify God and to worship Him and to serve Him? Or will such blessings, will even the family that you were born into, will even the country that you, that you are in that has given you so much opportunity to, to, to glorify God and to use even blessings that God gives you to glorify Him, 
Will these blessings be used by you to glorify God? Or will they serve in your condemnation? Will you be one who has heard the gospel over and over and over and you had walked away in unbelief? Tried to find fault in the one that said it. Tried, tried to find fault in this reason or that reason. Don't be such a one. Don't be like those within this generation that had the blessing of God, that had the fullness of the gospel presented to them. The very one who came before them and performed what, he, what was said by God, what was said by the prophets would be done and yet denied it. Don't be one that squanders the blessings of the Lord. Don't be one that squanders these spiritual blessings. See these blessings and see the ways in which they cause you to see your, 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 your sinfulness, your hopelessness. And don't experience that pain and then just turn away. And sometimes, sometimes pain is not a bad thing. If you burn your hand on the stove, yeah, that's not fun. That's painful. But it would be better to burn your hand on the stove and pull away than to keep your hand there and not experience the pain. The pain is there because you're in danger. The pain is there because the fire is harmful. The pain is there because you are going to damage your hand. See, it is, a, it is a disorder not to feel pain. And one who would experience pain and just continue to walk in it is one who has a disorder, who has a problem. And the same can happen with you, dear friends. If you continue to, to kick away at the blessings God gives you, continue to kick away at the opportunities that God gives, you can sear your conscience in such a way that you will not even blush at sin in such a way you will not even have shame any longer. Oh, dear friends, don't be one who pushes away at the blessings God gives. Don't be one who kicks at the goads. That's the term from the Old Testament where there was, there was an oxen and the farmer was trying to goad them to keep them in the right way and they're kicking back against this guidance from the farmer because they want to go their own direction. Don't be one that kicks against the goads that God sends but use it for its purpose. Use it to see your hopelessness within your own religion and the hope that is there in Christ. Oh, be one that glorifies God with the light that you have been given. Be one that blesses God and lives in righteousness. In Christ, you could, and you see it in the Scriptures, you could have Christ and lose everything, lose your life, lose your finances, lose your job, lose your standing in a culture. And you're, you're, you're more powerful than the most powerful person in the world without Christ. You're, you're wealthier than the wealthiest person in the world apart from Christ. Christ is of greater value than anything this world could give to you. Oh, dear friends, my plea with you is to turn to Christ and to cling to Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Christ and the blessing that we have in Him. We thank You for the goodness of what He has given. We thank You for His sufficiency. We pray that we would not waste the light that You give to us. We pray that we would not waste the blessings that You give to us. May we use even these good things for Your glory. 
May you bless us in trusting in Christ in all manners of difficulty in life. May you use these difficulties even as Pastor Fry taught earlier to bring about your good purpose in our lives. Even these rocks that the ocean smashes into and May they be used even for our good purpose, for your good purpose, to accomplish your purpose within us. We thank you for Christ and all that he has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.